0: Welcome to the MPAC Clinical Podcast. This is Dr. Sean Canone, and this week we're going to be again talking about anticholinergic drugs. You're probably wondering if we're going to get on to a different topic at some point, and the answer is yes, but I hope that you now see the importance of the cholinergic system of the body, the physiology, the pathophysiology of many of the common disease states that we manage, and also the many medications that we use that affect the cholinergic system of the body. Now, today we're going to be looking specifically at chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. We're going to look at it from the cholinergic standpoint, though, and this is very important. In previous episodes, we've talked about the normal physiology of the cholinergic parasympathetic nervous system and the impact and importance of acetylcholine activity throughout the body. We've talked about the ways that acetylcholine interacts with one of the five known muscarinic receptors. We've also talked about the dangers of anticholinergic side effects and the fact that many many medications that we use all the time have some degree of anticholinergic activity and they create what is termed anticholinergic load or burden. We've also looked at the common adverse effects of anticholinergic drugs which we remember with the phrase, can't spit, can't see, can't poop, can't pee, can't think. And then we talked about the utilization of procholinergic medications in dementia and the potential benefits that may come from enhancing the natural activity of acetylcholine at the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. And then in recent weeks, we talked about the potential positive effects of blocking naturally occurring acetylcholine activity, In essence, blocking particular muscarinic receptors to achieve a desired physiological effect and help certain medical conditions. Specifically, we looked at the issue of overactive bladder and how anticholinergic drugs are traditionally used for this condition and they can be very helpful for patients, but they have potential for systemic side effects and we have to be very, very cautious in the way that we approach overactive bladder therapy. In this episode, we're going to talk about another very common place where anticholinergic drugs are used and are often considered an essential piece of the clinical management approach, and that is in the realm of COPD. Now, as you know, COPD is a devastatingly significant but highly preventable clinical condition. COPD is one of the key focused diagnoses for payers and government agencies so there's been an increased effort in recent years to emphasize smoking abstinence or cessation in our population, and additionally, global guidelines for the management of COPD have been created and updated, and improved clinical care and outcomes have been incentivized through shared savings programs and readmission penalties in this increasingly value-based healthcare system. Now in this episode, we're going to focus on COPD itself, giving some background information, statistics, and updates on management guidelines. In the next episode, we'll look at how anticholinergic drug therapy plays a key role in COPD management and explore some of the risks and benefits of pharmacological treatment, giving insights on some of the subtle nuances between the more common anticholinergic drug approaches for this condition. COPD is a common and, for the most part, preventable and treatable lung disease characterized by persistent airflow limitation that is usually progressive in nature. The characteristic symptoms of COPD include dyspnea, or shortness of breath, cough and sputum production. And there are two basic subgroups of COPD, chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Some of you may remember back to anatomy books like Netter's Anatomy where they would stereotypically categorize patients as either a pink puffer with emphysema or a blue bloater with chronic bronchitis. But in actuality, many patients have a combination of the two rather than a true chronic bronchitis or a true emphysema. And obviously, while COPD is a disease of the lungs, it really does produce significant systemic consequences. There are many other organ systems of the body as well as overall function and well-being that are impacted by COPD. There are numerous risk factors for COPD including genetic risk factors, age, occupational exposures, or other environmental exposures, But by and large, the most common risk factor for COPD is cigarette smoking, which accounts for four out of every five cases of COPD. Tobacco smoke or occupational exposures cause inflammation in the lungs that affect the small airways and create inflammation and remodeling of the bronchial tree. There's also parenchymal destruction, the tissue of the lungs where alveoli, the place where oxygen and carbon dioxide are transported. They are destroyed, and eventually the elastic recoil of the lungs themselves is lost. This together creates airflow limitation, which is the characteristic hallmark sign of COPD. COPD is the fourth most costly disease state in the United States, accounting for over $50 billion a year in spend. And if you look at the top five causes of death in the United States, COPD is the only one that is rising year over year. It's currently estimated that around 12 million people are diagnosed with COPD in the U.S., but there are at least 12 million more that are undiagnosed but have the condition. And if you look at COPD severity amongst those 12 million who are diagnosed, it's approximately one-third having mild COPD, one-third having moderate COPD, and one-third having severe to very severe COPD. So that means 4 million patients with severe to very severe COPD that's been diagnosed, and within that 4 million, about three-fourths have chronic bronchitis-type COPD. Now, of that over $50 billion in annual spend, $30 billion comes from direct costs for COPD. 68% of that is coming from hospital admissions, 22% coming from outpatient visits, and only 8% coming from prescribed drugs. One of the things that's really problematic in the U.S. right now is that, yes, we're trying to reduce the risk of hospitalizations and ED utilization, but we have not done a very good job as a medical community at treating people to the standard of care with medications. We often feel that they're the difficult part to navigate from an expense standpoint, but in the vast pie scheme of COPD... They are a very very small player. Now we all know that hospital readmissions are a very common thing in COPD and that's why they're being targeted so aggressively by payers and by the government and to give you an idea of how significant it is there's a study that was done in Spain which showed that 30-day readmission rates for COPD are 16% and as you push out even to one year the rates go up to nearly 60% for readmissions. So we know that COPD is a significant issue. We know that it leads to very poor quality of life, to high health care costs. We know that it's a preventable condition, that if we can just convince the population to abstain from cigarette smoking, convince those who have been smoking for years to stop, that we can really make a difference in the realm of COPD here in the U.S., But in the meantime, we think about the management of COPD. Because many of our patients coming to us have this diagnosis, they're fairly far along in their condition, and now it's up to us to really try to get them treated to the standard of care, help them symptomatically, reduce their risk of exacerbations, and ultimately reduce their risk of unnecessary healthcare utilization. And this is where the gold guidelines come in. It's actually called the GOLD Report. It stands for Global Strategy for Diagnosis, Management, and Prevention of COPD. And Again, this is a global set of guidelines that really help us to understand how to risk stratify patients with COPD and how our therapy should be guided based on that individual assessment of the patient. If you've never had a chance to look at the GOLD Report, I'd encourage you to do that. This podcast will not replace kind of a full in-depth review of the GOLD guidelines, but I want to touch on some very practical, pertinent principles to keep in mind as we approach our patients with COPD. First, it's important to know that GOLD delineates between airflow limitation on one side and symptoms and risk of exacerbations on the other. So let me just explain that a bit. Airflow limitation is measured by spirometry. It gives you an FEV1, a forced expiratory volume in one second. And gold has four different subcategories for FEV1. If the FEV1 is greater than 80% of predicted, you're a gold category 1. If you're between 50 and 79% of predicted, a gold category 2. Between 30 and 49% of predicted lung function, you're gold category 3. And if you're less than 30% have predicted your GOLD category 4 and would be the most severe subcategory of COPD. Now in past GOLD guidelines revisions, it was very difficult for those of us practicing in long-term care post-acute care because it's so difficult for us to get an accurate FEV1 on a patient. Many of them have cognitive impairment and can't comply with the examination itself. Oftentimes they're coming to us and it's more of a an issue of trying to get lung function testing done for a patient who lives in the long-term care setting. So we're highly dependent upon testing that was done at the hospital. But unfortunately, during an acute exacerbation or a hospitalization, that's not necessarily the best time to try to be measuring their airflow limitation. You want to see them at their baseline, and so oftentimes testing is not performed at the hospital during that acute hospitalization. But thankfully, when the GOLD guidelines were updated in 2017, they pulled airflow limitation out of the equation, so to speak, and now we have in front of us an assessment tool which takes into account symptoms of COPD and risk of exacerbations to help us stratify our patients based on symptoms and risk. Patients are essentially grouped into one of four categories, A, B, C, or D, A patient who is deemed a gold A patient would be someone who has very few symptoms of COPD and has not had an exacerbation that's led to a hospital admission in the last year. By contrast, a gold type D patient, that's D as in dog, would be one who has more symptoms and has had an exacerbation in the last 12 months. Now you might say, I have a decent idea of whether a patient had an exacerbation in the last 12 months, but how do I measure symptoms? They can be very subjective. Well, there's actually a scale that is utilized for the gold guidelines called the Modified Medical Research Council Scale, MMRC. This scale is graded from 0 to 4, so there are 5 categories of gradation on the MMRC scale. But it is fairly simple to remember because at grade 2, which is the midway point on the scale, is when a patient would progress into that higher risk category in the gold guidelines. So what is grade 2? A patient who walks slower than people of the same age on level ground because of breathlessness or having to stop for a breath when walking at their own pace on level ground. So it doesn't take much to get here, and I think most of the patients we care for in nursing homes who have COPD probably have some limitations in their ability to function because of their COPD. So just to summarize the GOLD guidelines at a very high level, it's important to see that there are essentially two things in view. One, reducing symptoms of COPD, and two, reducing the risk of exacerbations. GOLD also helps us to think very objectively about the subgroup of COPD, what a particular patient is experiencing with regard to symptoms and exacerbation risk, and we know that as they move from an A-type patient to a B-type patient to a C to a D, that their risk for symptoms and exacerbations increases, and the corresponding treatments that are needed at each stage then become more and more pronounced. Well, there's a lot more to be said about COPD from a background and statistical standpoint, but I want to leave it at that. What we're going to be looking at next week is really diving into these subgroups of gold classifications and looking at the corresponding recommended pharmacological treatment approaches. Just to give you an idea of where we're headed, there are basically five categorizations of COPD medications, and they're easiest-remembered A, B, C, D, and other. There are A, anticholinergic drugs, B, beta-agonists, C, corticosteroids, D, dalaresp, and E, others, which would include the methylxanthines, like theophylline or aminophylline, which are not used much anymore because of toxicity issues. Dalaresp is a very interesting drug. It's a PDE4 inhibitor that goes by the generic name reflubilast, We'll spend some time talking about this medication just so you're aware of it and understand the potential benefit and side effect profile of the med, but for the most part, we're going to focus our attention on the ABCs, the anticholinergics, beta agonists, and corticosteroids, with a main emphasis on anticholinergics to keep in tune with our series. The takeaway from this week, and maybe the thing that you could do that would help the most before our conversation next time, is to take a look at the GOLD guidelines, go online, research the global strategy for the diagnosis, management, and prevention of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, look for the update from 2017, and familiarize yourself with GOLD guidelines. It'll really help you to understand the approaches to COPD management and how to risk stratify patients and tailor our pharmacological approaches to their individualized disease presentation. With that, I wish you well and look forward to talking to you next time.